Chapters 12 through 18 of On Virginity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On Virginity by St. Gregory of Nyssa, translated by William Moore and Henry Austin Wilson. Chapter 12. This reasoning and intelligent creature, man, at once the work and the likeness of the divine and imperishable mind, for so in the creation it is written of him that God made man in his image, Genesis 1.27. This creature, I say, did not in the course of his first production have united to the very essence of his nature the liability to passion and to death. Indeed, the truth about the image could never have been maintained if the beauty reflected in that image had been in the slightest degree opposed to the archetypal beauty. Passion was introduced afterwards, subsequent to man's first organization. And it was in this way. Being the image and the likeness, as has been said, of the power which rules all things, man kept also, in the matter of a free will, this likeness to him whose will is over all. He was enslaved to no outward necessity whatever. His feeling toward that which pleased him depended only on his private judgment, he was free to choose whatever he liked, and so he was a free agent, though circumvented with cunning, when he drew upon himself that disaster which now overwhelms humanity. He became himself the discoverer of evil, but he did not therein discover what God had made. For God did not make death. Man became, in fact, himself the fabricator, to a certain extent, the craftsman of evil. All who have the faculty of sight may enjoy equally the sunlight, and any one can, if he likes, put this enjoyment from him by shutting his eyes. In that case, it is not that the sun retires and produces that darkness, but that man himself puts a barrier between his eye and the sunshine. The faculty of vision cannot, indeed, even in the closing of the eyes, remain inactive, and so this operative sight necessarily becomes an operative darkness rising up in the man from his own free act in ceasing to see. Again, a man in building a house for himself may omit to make in it any way of entrance for the light. He will necessarily be in darkness, though he cuts himself off from the light voluntarily. So the first man of the earth, or rather he who generated evil in man, had for choice the good and the beautiful lying all around him in the very nature of things. Yet he willfully cut out a new way for himself against this nature, and in the act of turning away from virtue, which was his own free act, he created the usage of evil. For, be it observed, there is no such thing in the world as evil irrespective of a will, and discoverable in a substance apart from that. Every creature of God is good, and nothing of his to be rejected. All that God made was very good. But the habit of sinning entered, as we have described, and with fatal quickness into the life of man, and from that small beginning spread into this infinitude of evil. Then that godly beauty of the soul, which was an imitation of the archetypal beauty, like fine steel blackened with the vicious rust, preserved no longer the glory of its familiar essence, but was disfigured with the ugliness of sin. This thing so great and precious, as Scripture calls him, this being man, has fallen from his proud birthright. 
as those who have slipped and fallen heavily into mud and have all their features so besmeared with it that their nearest friends do not recognize them so this creature has fallen into the mire of sin and lost the blessing of being an image of the imperishable deity he has clothed himself instead with a perishable and foul resemblance to something else and this reason counsels him to put away again by washing it off in the cleansing water of this calling the earthly envelopment once removed the soul's beauty will again appear now the putting off of a strange accretion is equivalent to the return to that which is familiar and natural yet such a return cannot be but by again becoming that which in the beginning we were created in fact this likeness to the divine is not our work at all it is not the achievement of any faculty of man it is the great gift of god bestowed upon our nature at the very moment of our birth human efforts can only go so far as to clear away the filth of sin and so cause the buried beauty of the soul to shine forth again this truth is i think taught in the gospel when our lord says to those who can hear what wisdom speaks beneath a mystery that the kingdom of god is within you luke seventeen twenty one that word points to the fact that the divine good is not something apart from our nature and is not removed far away from those who have the will to seek it it is in fact within each of us ignored indeed and unnoticed while it is stifled beneath the cares and pleasures of life but found again whenever we can turn our powers of conscious thinking towards it if further confirmation of what we say is required i think it will be found in what is suggested by our lord in the searching for the lost drachma the thought there is that the widowed soul reaps no profit from the other virtues called drachmas in the parable being all of them found safe if that one other is not among them the parable therefore suggests that a candle should first be lit signifying doubtless our reason which throws light on hidden principles then that in one's own house that is within oneself we should search for that lost coin and by that coin the parable doubtless hints at the image of our king not yet hopelessly lost but hidden beneath the dirt and by this last we must understand the impurities of the flesh which being swept and purged away by carefulness of life leave clear to the view the object of our search then it is meant that the soul herself who finds this rejoices over it and with her the neighbors whom she calls in to share with her in this delight verily all those powers which are the housemates of the soul and which the parable names their neighbors for this occasion when so be that the image of the mighty king is revealed in all its brightness at last that image which the fashioner of each individual heart of us has stamped upon this our drachma will then be converted to that divine delight and festivity and will gaze upon the ineffable beauty of the recovered one rejoice with me she says because i have found the drachma which i had lost the neighbors that is the soul's familiar powers both the reasoning and the appetitive the affections of grief and of anger and of all the rest that are discerned in her at that joyful feast which celebrates the finding of the heavenly drachma are well called her friends also and it is meet that they should all rejoice in the lord when they all look towards the beautiful and the good and do everything for the glory of god no longer instruments of sin 
Romans 6.13. If, then, such is the lesson of this finding of the lost, viz., that we should restore the divine image from the foulness which the flesh wraps around it to its primitive state, let us become that which the first man was at the moment when he first breathed. And what was that? Destitute he was then of his covering of dead skins, but he could gaze without shrinking upon God's countenance. He did not yet judge of what was lovely by taste or sight. He found in the Lord alone all that was sweet. And he used the helpmeet given him only for this delight, as Scripture signifies when it said that he knew not her. Genesis 4, 1. Till he was driven forth from the garden, and till she, for the sin which she was decoyed into committing, was sentenced to the pangs of childbirth. We then, who in our first ancestor were thus ejected, are allowed to return to our earliest state of blessedness by the very same stages by which we lost paradise. What are they? Pleasure, craftily offered, began the fall, and there followed after pleasure, shame, and fear, even to remain longer in the sight of their Creator, so that they hid themselves in leaves and shade and after that they covered themselves with the skins of dead animals, and then were sent forth into this pestilential and exacting land where, as the compensation for having to die, marriage was instituted. Genesis 3.16 Now, if we are destined to depart hence and be with Christ, Philippians 1.23, we must begin at the end of the route of departure, which lies nearest to ourselves just as those who have travelled far from their friends at home, when they turn to reach again the place from where they started, first leave that district which they reached at the end of their outward journey. Marriage, then, is the last stage of our separation from the life that was led in paradise. Marriage, therefore, as our discourse has been suggesting, is the first thing to be left. It is the first station, as it were, for our departure to Christ. Next, we must retire from all anxious toil upon the land, such as man was bound to after his sin. Next, we must divest ourselves of those coverings of our nakedness, the coats of skins, namely, the wisdom of the flesh. We must renounce all shameful things done in secret, 2 Corinthians 4.2, and be covered no longer with the fig leaves of this bitter world. Then, when we have torn off the coatings of this life's perishable leaves, we must stand again in the sight of our Creator, and, repelling all illusion of taste and sight, take for our guide God's commandment only, instead of the venom-spitting serpent. That commandment was to touch nothing but what was good, and to leave what was evil untasted, because impatience to remain any longer in ignorance of evil would be but the beginning of the long train of actual evil. For this reason it was forbidden to our first parents to grasp the knowledge of the opposite to the good, as well as that of the good itself. They were to keep themselves from the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2.17, and to enjoy the good in its purity, unmixed with one particle of evil. And to enjoy that is, in my judgment, nothing else than to be ever with God, and to feel ceaselessly and continually this delight, unalloyed by anything that could tear us away from it. One might even be bold to say that this might be found the way by which a man could be again brought up into paradise out of this world which lies in the evil, 
into the paradise where Paul was, when he saw the unspeakable sights, which it is not lawful for a man to talk of. 2 Corinthians 12.14 Chapter 13 But seeing that paradise is the home of living spirits, and will not admit those who are dead in sin, and that we, on the other hand, are fleshly, subject to death, and sold under sin, how is it possible that one who is a subject of death's empire shall ever dwell in this land where all is life? What method of release from this jurisdiction can be devised? Here, too, the gospel teaching is abundantly sufficient. We hear our Lord saying to Nicodemus, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. We know, too, that the flesh is subject to death because of sin, but the Spirit of God is both incorruptible and life-giving and deathless. As at our physical birth there comes into the world with us a potentiality of being again turned to dust, plainly the Spirit also imparts a life-giving potentiality into the children begotten by himself. What lesson, then, results from these remarks? This, that we should wean ourselves from this life in the flesh, which has an inevitable follower, death and that we should search for a manner of life which does not bring death in its train. Now the life of virginity is such a life. We will add a few other things to show how true this is. Everyone knows that the propagation of mortal frames is the work which the intercourse of the sexes has to do. Whereas for those who are joined to the spirit, life and immortality instead of children are produced by this latter intercourse and the words of the apostle beautifully suit their case, for the joyful mother of such children as these shall be saved in childbearing. 1 Timothy 2.15 As the psalmist in his divine songs thankfully cries, he makes the barren woman to keep house, and to be a joyful mother of children. Truly, a joyful mother is the virgin mother who by the operation of the Spirit conceives the deathless children, and who is called by the prophet barren because of her modesty only. This life, then, which is stronger than the power of death, is, to those who think, the preferable one. The physical bringing of children into the world, I speak without wishing to offend, is as much a starting point of death as of life, because from the moment of birth the process of dying commences. But those who by virginity have desisted from this process have drawn within themselves the boundary line of death, and by their own deed have checked his advance. They have made themselves, in fact, a frontier between life and death, and a barrier, too, which thwarts him. If, then, death cannot pass beyond virginity, but finds his power checked and shattered there, it is demonstrated that virginity is a stronger thing than death, and that body is rightly named undying, which does not lend its service to a dying world nor brook to become the instrument of a succession of dying creatures. In such a body, the long unbroken career of decay and death, which has intervened between the first man and the lives of virginity which have been led, is interrupted. It would not be indeed that death should cease working as long as the human race by marriage has working too. He walked the path of life with all preceding generations, he started with every new-born child and accompanied it to the end. But he found in virginity a barrier, to pass which was an impossible feat. Just as, in the age of Mary, the mother of God, 
he who has reigned from adam to her time found when he came to her and dashed his forces against the fruit of her virginity as against a rock that he was shattered to pieces upon her so in every soul which passes through this life in the flesh under the protection of virginity the strength of death is in a manner broken and annulled for he does not find the places upon which he may fix his sting if you do not throw into the fire wood or straw or grass or something that it can consume it has not the force to last by itself so the power of death cannot go on working if marriage does not supply it with material and prepare victims for this executioner if you have any doubts left consider the actual names of those afflictions which death brings upon mankind and which were detailed in the first part of this discourse whence do they get their meaning widowhood orphanhood loss of children could they be a subject for grief if marriage did not precede nay all the dearly prized blisses and transports and comforts of marriage end in these agonies of grief the hilt of a sword is smooth and handy and polished and glittering outside it seems to grow to the outline of the hand but the other part is steel and the instrument of death formidable to look at more formidable still to come across such a thing is marriage it offers for the grasp of the senses a smooth surface of delights like a hilt of rare polish and beautiful workmanship but when a man has taken it up and has got it into his hands he finds the pain that has been wielded to it in his hands as well and it becomes to him the worker of mourning and of loss it is marriage that has the heartening spectacles to show of children left desolate in the tenderness of their years a mere prey of the powerful yet smiling often at their misfortune from ignorance of coming woes what is the cause of widowhood but marriage and retirement from this would bring with it an immunity from the whole burden of these sad taxes on our hearts can we expect it otherwise when the verdict that was pronounced on the delinquents in the beginning is annulled then too the mother's sorrows genesis three sixteen are no longer multiplied nor does sorrow herald the births of men then all calamity has been removed from life and tears wiped from off all faces isaiah twenty five eight conception is no more an iniquity nor child-bearing a sin and births shall be no more of bloods or of the will of man or of the will of the flesh but of god alone this is always happening whenever any one in a lively heart conceives all the integrity of the spirit and brings forth wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption too it is possible for any one to be the mother of such a son as our lord says he that does my will is my brother my sister and my mother matthew twelve fifty what room is there for death in such parturitions indeed in them death is swallowed up by life in fact the life of virginity seems to be an actual representation of the blessedness of the world to come showing as it does in itself so many signs of the presence of those expected blessings which are reserved for us there that the truth of this statement may be perceived we will verify it thus it is so firstly because a man who has thus died once for all to sin lives for the future to god he brings forth no more fruit unto death 
and having so far as in him lies made an end of this life within him according to the flesh he awaits thenceforth the expected blessing of the manifestation of the great god refraining from putting any distance between himself and this coming of god by an intervening posterity secondly because he enjoys even in this present life a certain exquisite glory of all the blessed results of our resurrection for our lord has announced that the life after our resurrection shall be as that of the angels now the peculiarity of the angelic nature is that they are strangers to marriage therefore the blessing of this promise has been already received by him who has not only mingled his own glory with the halo of the saints but also by the stainlessness of his life has so imitated the purity of these incorporeal beings if virginity can win us favors such as these what words are fit to express the admiration of so great a grace what other gift of the soul can be found so great and precious as not to suffer by comparison with this perfection chapter fourteen but if we apprehend at last the perfection of this grace we must understand as well what necessarily follows from it namely that it is not a single achievement ending in the subjugation of the body but that in intention it reaches to and pervades everything that is or is considered a right condition of the soul that soul indeed which in virginity cleaves to the true bridegroom will not remove herself merely from all bodily defilement she will make that abstention only the beginning of her purity and will carry this security from failure equally into everything else upon her path fearing less from a too partial heart she should by contact with evil in any one direction give occasion for the least weakness of unfaithfulness to suppose such a case but i will begin again what i was going to say that soul which cleaves to her master so as to become with him one spirit and by the compact of her wedded life has staked the love of all her heart and all her strength on him alone that soul will no more commit any other of the offences contrary to salvation than imperil her union with him by cleaving to fornication she knows that between all sins there is a single kinship of impurity and that if she were to defile herself with but one she could no longer retain her spotlessness an illustration will show what we mean suppose all the water in a pool remaining smooth and motionless while no disturbance of any kind comes to mar the peacefulness of the spot and then a stone thrown into the pool the movement in that one part will extend to the whole and while the stone's weight is carried to the bottom the waves that are set in motion round it pass in circles into others and so through all the intervening commotion are pushed on to the very edge of the water and the whole surface is ruffled with these circles feeling the movement of the depths so is the broad serenity and calm of the soul troubled by one invading passion and affected by the injury of a single part they tell us too those who have investigated the subject that the virtues are not disunited from each other and that to grasp the principle of any one virtue will be impossible to one who has not seized that which underlies the rest and that the man who shows one virtue in his character will necessarily show them all therefore by contraries the deprivation of anything in our moral nature will extend to the whole virtuous life and in very truth as the apostle tells us the whole is affected by the parts and if one member suffer all the members suffer with it if one be honoured all rejoice chapter fifteen 
But the ways in our life which turn aside towards sin are innumerable, and their number is told by Scripture in various manners. Many are they that trouble me and persecute, and many are they that fight against me from on high, and many other texts like that. We may affirm indeed absolutely that many are they who plot in the adulterer's fashion to destroy this truly honorable marriage, and to defile this inviolate bed. And if we must name them one by one, we charge with this adulterous spirit anger, avarice, envy, revenge, enmity, malice, hatred, and whatever the apostle puts in the class of those things which are contrary to sound doctrine. Now let us suppose a lady, prepossessing and lovely above her peers, and on that account wedded to a king, but besieged because of her beauty by profligate lovers. As long as she remains indignant at these would-be seducers and complains them to her lawful husband, she keeps her chastity, and has no one before her eyes but her bridegroom. The profligates find no vantage ground for their attack upon her. But if she were to listen to a single one of them, her chastity with regard to the rest would not exempt her from the retribution. It would be sufficient to condemn her, that she had allowed that one to defile the marriage bed. So the soul whose life is in God will find her pleasure in no single one of those things which make a beauteous show to deceive her. If she were, in some fit of weakness, to admit the defilement to her heart, she would herself have broken the covenant of her spiritual marriage. And, as the scripture tells us, into a malicious soul wisdom cannot come. Wisdom 1.4 it may, in a word, be truly said that the good husband cannot come to dwell with the soul that is irascible, or malice-bearing, or harbors any other disposition which jars with that concord. No way has been discovered of harmonizing things whose nature is antagonistic and which have nothing in common. The Apostle tells us there is no communion of light with darkness, 2 Corinthians 6.14, or of righteousness with iniquity, or, in a word, of all the qualities which we perceive and name as the essence of God's nature, with all the opposite which are perceived in evil. Seeing, then, the impossibility of any union between mutual repellents, we understand that the vicious soul is estranged from entertaining the company of the good. What, then, is the practical lesson from this? The chaste and thoughtful virgin must sever herself from any affection which can in any way impart contagion to her soul. She must keep herself pure for the husband who has married her, not having spot or blemish or any such thing. Chapter 16 There is only one right path. It is narrow and contracted. It has no turnings either on the one side or the other. No matter how we leave it, there is the same danger of straying hopelessly away. This being so, the habit which many have got into must be as far as possible corrected. Those, I mean, who while they fight strenuously against the baser passions, yet still go on hunting for pleasure in the shape of worldly honor and positions which will gratify their love of power. They act like some domestic who longed for liberty, but instead of exerting himself to get away from slavery, proceeded only to change his masters, and thought liberty consisted in that change. But all alike are slaves, even though they should not all go on being ruled by the same masters, as long as a dominion of any sort, with power to enforce it, is set over them. There are others, again, who long after a long battle against all the pleasures, yield themselves easily on another field, where feelings of an opposite kind come in. 
and in the intense exactitude of their lives fall a ready prey to melancholy and irritation and to brooding over injuries and to everything that is the direct opposite of pleasurable feelings from which they are very reluctant to extricate themselves this is always happening whenever any emotion instead of virtuous reason controls the course of a life for the commandment of the lord is exceedingly far-shining so as to enlighten the eyes even of the simple declaring that good cleaves only to god but god is not pain any more than he is pleasure he is not cowardice any more than boldness he is not fear nor anger nor any other emotion which sways the untutored soul but as the apostle says he is very wisdom and sanctification truth and joy and peace and everything like that if he is such how can any one be said to cleave to him who is mastered by the very opposite is it not want of reason in any one to suppose that when he has striven successfully to escape the dominion of one particular passion he will find virtue in its opposite for instance to suppose that when he has escaped pleasure he will find virtue in letting pain have possession of him or when he has by an effort remained proof against anger is crouching with fear it matters not whether we miss virtue or rather god himself who is the sum of virtue in this way or in that take the case of great bodily prostration one would say that the sadness of this failure was the same whether the cause has been excessive underfeeding or immoderate eating both failures to stop in time end in the same result he therefore who watches over the life of the sanity of the soul will confine himself to the moderation of the truth he will continue without touching either of these opposite states which run alongside virtue this teaching is not mine it comes from the divine lips it is clearly contained in that passage where our lord says to his disciples that they are as sheep wandering among wolves yet are not to be as doves only but are to have something of the serpent too in their disposition and that means that they should neither carry to excess the practice of which seems praiseworthy in simplicity as such a habit would come very near to downright madness or on the other hand should deem the cleverness which most admire to be a virtue while unsoftened by any admixture with its opposite they were in fact to form another disposition by a compound of these two seeming opposites cutting off its silliness from one its evil cunning from the other so that one single beautiful character should be created from the two a union of simplicity of purpose with shrewdness be he says wise as serpents and harmless as doves chapter seventeen let that which was then said by our lord be the general maxim for every life especially let it be the maxim for those who are coming nearer god through the gateway of virginity that they should never in watching for a perfection in one direction and present an unguarded side in another and contrary one but should in all directions realize the good so that they may guarantee in all things their holy life against failure a soldier does not arm himself only on some points leaving the rest of his body to take its chance unprotected if he were to receive his death wound upon that what would have been the advantage of this partial armor again who would call that feature faultless which from some accident had lost one of those requisites which go to make up the sum of beauty 
The disfigurement of the mutilated part mars the grace of the part untouched. The gospel implies that he who undertakes the building of a tower, but spends all his labor upon the foundations without ever reaching the completion, is worthy of ridicule. And what else do we learn from the parable of the tower, but to strive to come to the finish of every lofty purpose, accomplishing the work of God in all the multiform structures of his commandments? One stone, indeed, is no more the whole edifice of the tower than one commandment kept will raise the soul's perfection to the required height. The foundation must by all means first be laid, but over it, as the Apostle says, 1 Corinthians 3.12, the edifice of gold and precious gems must be built. For so is the doing of the commandment put by the prophet who cries, I have loved your commandment above gold and many a precious stone. Let the virtuous life have for its substructure the love of virginity. But upon this let every result of virtue be reared. If virginity is believed to be a vastly precious thing, and to have a divine look, as indeed is the case as well as men believe of it, yet if the whole life does not harmonize with this perfect note, and it be marred by the succeeding discord of the soul, this thing becomes but the jewel of gold in the swine's snout, or the pearl that is trodden under the swine's feet. But we have said enough upon this. Chapter 18 If anyone supposes that this want of mutual harmony between his life and a single one of its circumstances is quite unimportant, let him be taught the meaning of our maxim by looking at the management of a house. The master of a private dwelling will not allow any untidiness or unseemliness to be seen in the house, such as a couch upset, or the table littered with rubbish, or vessels of price thrown away in dirty corners, while those which serve ignobler uses are thrust forward for entering guests to see. He has everything arranged neatly and in the proper place, where it stands to the most advantage, and then he can welcome his guests, without any misgivings that he need be ashamed of, opening the interior of his house to receive them. The same duty, I take it, is incumbent on that master of our tabernacle, the mind. It has to arrange everything within us, and to put each particular faculty of the soul, which the Creator has fashioned to be our implement and our vessel, to fitting and noble uses. We will now mention in detail the way in which any one might manage his life, with its present advantages, to his improvement, hoping that no one will accuse us of trifling or over-minuteness. We advise, then, that love's passion be placed in the soul's purest shrine, as a thing chosen to be the first-fruits of all our gifts, and devoted entirely to God. And when once this has been done, that to keep it untouched and unsullied by any secular defilement, then indignation and anger and hatred must be as watchdogs to be roused only against attacking sins. They must follow their natural impulse only against the thief and the enemy who is creeping in to plunder the divine treasure chamber, and who comes only for that, that he may steal and mangle and destroy. Courage and confidence are to be weapons in our hands to battle any sudden surprise and attack of the wicked who advance. Hope and patience are to be the staffs to lean upon whenever we are weary with the trials of the world. As for sorrow, we must have a stock of it ready to apply, if need should happen to arise for it in the hour of repentance for our sins, believing at the same time that it is never useful except to minister to that. Righteousness will be our rule of straightforwardness, 
guarding us from stumbling either in word or deed, and guiding us in the disposal of the faculties of our soul, as well as in the due consideration for every one we meet. The love of gain, which is a large, incalculably large element in every soul, when once applied to the desire for God, will bless the man who has it. For he will be violent where it is right to be violent. Wisdom and prudence will be our advisers as to our best interests. They will order our lives so as never to suffer from any thoughtless folly. But suppose a man does not apply the aforesaid faculties of the soul to their proper use, but reverses their intended purpose. Suppose he wastes his love upon the basest objects, and stores up his hatred only for his own kinsmen. Suppose he welcomes iniquity, plays the man only against his parents, is bold only in absurdities, fixes his hopes on emptiness, chases prudence and wisdom from his company, takes gluttony and folly for his mistresses, and uses all his other opportunities in the same fashion, he would indeed be a strange and unnatural character to a degree beyond any one's power to express. If we could imagine any one putting his armor on all the wrong way, reversing the helmet so as to cover his face while the plume nodded backward, putting his feet into the cuirass, and fitting the greaves on to his breast, changing to the right side all that ought to go on the left and vice versa, and how such a hoplite would be likely to fare in battle, when we should have an idea of the fate in life which is sure to await him, whose confused judgment makes him reverse the proper uses of his soul's faculties. We must therefore provide this balance in all feeling. The true sobriety of mind is naturally able to supply it, and if one had to find an exact definition of this sobriety, one might declare absolutely that it amounts to our ordered control, by dint of wisdom and prudence, over every emotion of the soul. Moreover, such a condition in the soul will be no longer in need of any laborious method to attain to the high and heavenly realities. It will accomplish with the greatest ease that which erewhile seemed so unattainable, it will grasp the object of its search as a natural consequence of rejecting the opposite attractions. A man who comes out of darkness is necessarily in the light. A man who is not dead is necessarily alive. Indeed, if a man is not to have received his soul to no purpose, he will certainly be upon the path of truth. The prudence and the science employed to guard against error will be itself a sure guidance along the right road. Slaves who have been freed and cease to serve their former masters, the very moment they become their own masters, direct all their thoughts towards themselves, so, I take it, the soul, which has been freed from ministering to the body, becomes at once cognizant of its own inherent energy. But this liberty consists, as we learn from the Apostle, Galatians 5.1, in not again being held in the yoke of slavery, and not being bound again, like a runaway or a criminal, with the fetters of marriage. But I must return here to what I said at first, that the perfection of this liberty does not consist only in that one point of abstaining from marriage. Let no one suppose that the prize of virginity is so insignificant and so easily won as that, as if one little observance of the flesh could settle so vitally matter. But we have seen that every man who does a sin is the servant of sin. John 8.34 so that a declension towards vice in any act, or in any practice whatever, makes a slave, and still more, a branded slave, of the man, covering him through sin's lashes, with bruises and seared spots. 
Therefore it behooves the man who grasps at the transcendent aim of all virginity to be true to himself in every respect, and to manifest his purity equally in every relation of his life. If any of the inspired words are required to aid our pleading, the truth itself will be sufficient to corroborate the truth when it inculcates this very kind of teaching in the veiled meaning of a gospel parable. The good and eatable fish are separated by the fisher's skill from the bad and poisonous fish, so that the enjoyment of the good should not be spoilt by any of the bad getting into the vessels with them. The work of true sobriety is the same. From all pursuits and habits to choose that which is pure and improving, rejecting in every case that which does not seem likely to be useful, and letting it go back into the universal and secular life, called the sea, Matthew thirteen forty-seven to 48 in the imagery of the parable. The psalmist also, when expounding the doctrine of a full confession, calls this restless suffering tumultuous life, waters coming in even unto the soul, depths of waters, and a hurricane, in which see indeed every rebellious thought sinks, as the Egyptian did, with a stone's weight into the deeps. Exodus 15.10 But all in us that is dear to God, and has a piercing insight into the truth, called Israel in the narrative, passes, but that alone, over that sea as if it were dry land, and it never reached by the bitterness and the brine of life's billows. Thus, typically, under the leadership of the law, for Moses was a type of the law that was coming, Israel passes unwedded over that sea, while the Egyptian who crosses in her track is overwhelmed. Each fares according to the disposition which he carries with him. One walks lightly enough, the other is dragged into the deep water. For virtue is a light and buoyant thing and all who live in her way fly like clouds, as Isaiah says, and as doves with their young ones. But sin is a heavy affair. Sitting, as another of the prophets says, upon a talent of lead. If, however, this reading of the history appears to any forced and inapplicable, the miracle at the Red Sea does not present itself to him as written for our prophet. Let him listen to the apostle. Now all these things happened unto them for types, and they are written for our admonition. End of chapter 18Translated by William Moore and Henry Austin Wilson. Chapter 19. But besides other things, the action of Miriam, the prophetess, also gives rise to these surmisings of ours. Directly the sea was crossed, she took in her hand a dry and sounding timbrel and conducted the women's dance. Exodus 15.20. By this timbrel, the story may mean to imply virginity, as first perfected by Miriam whom, indeed, I would believe to be a type of Mary, the mother of God. Just as the timbrel emits a loud sound because it is devoid of all moisture and reduced to the highest degree of dryness, so has virginity a clear and ringing report among men because it repels from itself the vital sap of merely physical life. Thus Miriam's timbrel being a dead thing, and virginity being a deadening of the bodily passions, 
it is perhaps not very far removed from the bounds of probability that miriam was a virgin however we can but guess and surmise we cannot clearly prove that this was so and that miriam the prophetess led a dance of virgins even though many of the learned have affirmed distinctly that she was unmarried from the fact that the history makes no mention either of her marriage or of her being a mother and surely she would have been named and known not as the sister of aaron exodus fifteen twenty but from her husband if she had had one since the head of the woman is not the brother but the husband but if among a people with whom motherhood was sought after and classed as a blessing and regarded as a public duty the grace of virginity nevertheless came to be regarded as a precious thing how does it behoove us to feel towards it who do not judge of the divine blessings according to the flesh indeed it has been revealed in the oracles of god on what occasion to conceive and to bring forth is a good thing and what species of fecundity was desired by god's saints for both the prophet isaiah and the divine apostle have made this clear and certain the one cries from fear of you o lord have i conceived the other boasts that he is the parent of the largest family of any bringing to the birth whole cities and nations not the corinthians and galatians only whom by his travellings he moulded for the lord but all in the wide circuit from jerusalem to illyricum his children filled the world begotten by him in christ through the gospel in the same strain the womb of the holy virgin which ministered to an immaculate birth is pronounced blessed in the gospel for that birth did not annul the virginity nor did the virginity impede so great a birth when the spirit of salvation as isaiah names it is being born the willings of the flesh are useless there is also a particular teaching of the apostle which harmonizes with this viz each man of us is a double man two corinthians four sixteen one the outwardly visible whose natural fate is to decay the other perceptible only in the secret of the heart yet capable of renovation if this teaching is true and it must be true because wisdom is speaking there then there is no absurdity in supposing a double marriage also which answers in every detail to either man and maybe if one was to assert boldly that the body's virginity was the cooperator and the agent of the inward marriage this assertion would not be much beside the probable fact chapter twenty now it is impossible as far as manual exercise goes to ply two arts at once for instance husbandry and sailing or tinkering and carpentering if one is to be honestly taken in hand the other must be left alone just so there are these two marriages for our choice the one elected in the flesh and the other in the spirit the preoccupation in the one must cause of necessity alienation from the other no more is the eye able to look at two objects at once but it must concentrate its special attention on one at a time no more can the tongue effect utterances in two different languages so as to pronounce for instance a hebrew word and a greek word in the same moment no more can the ear take in at one and the same time a narrative of facts and a hortatory discourse if each special tone is heard separately it will impress its ideas upon the hearer's minds but if they are combined and so poured into the ear an inextricable confusion of ideas will be the result one meaning 
being mutually lost in the other and no more by analogy do our emotional powers possess a nature which can at once pursue the pleasures of sense and court the spiritual union nor besides can both those ends be gained by the same courses of life continence mortification of the passions scorn of fleshly needs are the agents of the one union but all that are the reverse of these are the agents of bodily habitation as when two masters are before us to choose between and we cannot be subject to both for no man can serve two masters he who is wise will choose the one most useful to himself so when two marriages are before us to choose between and we cannot contract both for he that is unmarried carries for the things of the lord but he that is married cares for the things of the world one corinthians seven thirty two i repeat that it would be the aim of a sound mind not to miss choosing the more profitable one and not to be ignorant either of the way which will lead it to this a way which cannot be learned but by some such comparison as the following in the case of a marriage of this world a man who is anxious to avoid appearing altogether insignificant pays the greatest attention both to physical health and becoming adornment and amplitude of means and security from any disgraceful revelations as to his antecedents or his parentage for so he thinks things will be most likely to turn out as he wishes now just in the same way the man who is courting the spiritual alliance will first of all display himself by the renewal of his mind a young man without a single touch of age upon him next he will reveal a lineage rich in that in which it is a noble ambition to be rich not priding himself on worldly wealth but luxuriating only in the heavenly treasures as for family distinction he will not vaunt that which comes by the mere routine of devolution even to numbers of the worthless but that which is gained by the successful efforts of his own zeal and labors a distinction which only those can boast of who are sons of the light and children of god and are styled nobles from the sunrise because of their splendid deeds strength and health he will not try to gain by bodily training and feeding but by all that is the contrary of this perfecting the spirit's strength in the body's weakness i could tell also of the suitor's gifts to the bride in such a wedding they are not procured by the money that perishes but are contributed out of the wealth peculiar to the soul would you know their names you must hear from paul that excellent adorner of the bride in what the wealth of those consists who in everything commend themselves he mentions much else that is priceless in it and adds in chastity two corinthians six six and besides this all the recognized fruits of the spirit from any quarter whatever are gifts of this marriage if a man is going to carry out the advice of solomon and take for helpmate and life companion that true wisdom of which he says love her and she shall keep you honor her that she may embrace you proverbs four six then he will prepare himself in a manner worthy of such a love so as to feast with all the joyous wedding guests in spotless raiment and not be cast forth while claiming to sit at that feast for not having put on the wedding garment it is plain moreover that the argument applies equally to men and women to move them towards such a marriage there is neither male nor female 
Galatians 3.28, the Apostle says, Christ is all and in all, Colossians 3.11. And so it is equally reasonable that he who is enamored of wisdom should hold the object of his passionate desire, who is the true wisdom, and that the soul which cleaves to the undying bridegroom should have the fruition of her love for the true wisdom, which is God. We have now sufficiently revealed the nature of the spiritual union, and the object of the pure and heavenly love. Chapter 21 It is perfectly clear that no one can come near the purity of the divine being who has not first himself become such. He must therefore place between himself and the pleasures of the senses a high strong wall of separation, so that in this his approach to the deity the purity of his own heart may not become soiled again. Such an impregnable wall will be found in a complete estrangement from everything wherein passion operates. Now pleasure is one in kind, as we learn from the experts. As water parted into various channels from one single fountain, it spreads itself over the pleasure lover and through the various avenues of the senses, so that it has on his heart that the man, who through any one particular sensation succumbs to the resulting pleasure, has received a wound from that sensation. This accords with the teaching given from the divine lips, that he who has satisfied the lust of the eyes has received the mischief already in his heart. For I take it that our Lord was speaking in that particular example of any of the senses, so that we might well carry on his saying, and add that he who has heard to lust after, and what follows, he who has touched to lust after, he who has lowered any faculty within us into the service of pleasure has sinned in his heart. To prevent this, then, we want to apply to our own lives that rule of all temperance, never to let the mind dwell on anything wherein pleasure's bait is hid, but above all to be especially watchful against the pleasure of taste, for that seems anyway the most deeply rooted and to be the mother, as it were, of all forbidden enjoyment. The pleasures of eating and drinking, leading to boundless excess, inflict upon the body the doom of the most dreadful sufferings. For overindulgence is the parent of the most painful diseases. To secure for the body a continuous tranquillity, unstirred by the pains of surfeit, we must make up our minds to a more sparing regimen, and constitute the need of it on each occasion, not the pleasure of it, as the measure and limit of our indulgence. If the sweetness will nevertheless mingle itself with the satisfaction of the need, for hunger knows how to sweeten everything, and by the vehemence of appetite she gives the zest of pleasure to every discoverable supply of, of the need, we must not because of the resulting enjoyment reject the satisfaction, nor yet make this latter our leading aim. In everything we must select the expedient quantity, and leave untouched what merely feasts the senses. Chapter 22 We see how the husbandmen have a method for separating the chaff, which is united with the wheat, with a view to employ each for its proper purpose, the one for the sustenance of man, the other for burning and feeding of animals. The laborer in the field of temperance will in like manner distinguish with satisfaction from the mere delight, and will fling this latter nature to savages whose end is to be burned as the Apostle says, but will take the other, in proportion to the actual need, with thankfulness. Many, however, slide into the very opposite kind of excess, and unconsciously to themselves, 
in their over-preciseness, laboriously thwart their own design. They let their soul fall down the other side from the heights of divine elevation to the level of dull thoughts and occupations, where their minds are so bent upon regulations which merely affect the body that they can no longer walk in their heavenly freedom and gaze above. Their only inclination is to this tormenting and afflicting of the flesh. It would be well, then, to give this also careful thought, so as to be equally on our guard against either over amount, neither stifling the mind beneath the wound of the flesh, nor, on the other hand, by gratuitously inflicted weakenings, sapping and lowering the powers, so that it can have no thought but of the body's pain. And let every one remember that wise precept, which warns us from turning to the right hand or to the left. I have heard a certain physician of my acquaintance, in the course of explaining the secrets of his art, say that our body consists of four elements, not of the same species, but disposed to be conflicting. Yet the hot penetrated the cold, and an equally unexpected union of the wet and the dry took place, the contradictories of each pair being brought into contact by the relationship to the intervening pair. He added an extremely subtle explanation of this account of his studies in nature. Each of these elements was in its essence diametrically opposed to its contradictory. But then it had two other qualities lying on each side of it, and by virtue of its kinship with them it came into contact with its contradictory. For example, the cold and the hot each unite with the wet or the dry. And again, the wet and the dry each unite with the hot or the cold. And so this sameness of quality, when it manifests itself in contradictories, is itself the agent which affects the union of those contradictories. What business of mine, however, is it to explain exactly the details of this change from this mutual separation and repugnance of nature to this mutual union through the medium of kindred qualities except for the purpose for which we have mentioned it and that purpose was to add that the author of this analysis of the body's constitution advised that all possible care be taken to preserve a balance between these properties for that in fact health consisted in not letting any one of them gain the mastery within us if his doctrine has truth in it, then, for our health's continuance, we must secure such a habit, and by no irregularity of diet produce either an excess or a defect in any member of these or constituent elements. The chariot-master, if the young horses which he has to drive will not work well together, does not urge a fast one with the whip and rein in a slow one, nor again does he let a horse that shies in the traces or is hard-mouthed, gallop his own way to the confusion of orderly driving. But he quickens the pace of the first, checks the second, reaches the third with cuts of his whip, till he has made them all breathe evenly together in a straight career. Now our mind in like manner holds in its grasp the reins of this chariot of the body, and in that capacity it will not devise, in the time of youth, when heat of temperament is abundant, ways of heightening that fever, nor will it multiply the cooling and thinning things when the body is already chilled by illness or by time. And in the case of all these physical qualities, it will be guided by the scripture, so as actually to realize it. He that gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. It will curtail immoderate lengths in either direction, and so will be careful to replenish where there is much lack.
the inefficiency of the body from either cause will be that which it guards against it will train the flesh neither making it wild and ungovernable by excess of pampering nor sickly and unstrong and nerveless for the required work by immoderate mortification that is temperance's highest aim it looks not to the afflicting of the body but to the peaceful action of the soul's functions chapter twenty three now the details of the life of him who has chosen to live in such a philosophy as this the things to be avoided the exercises to be engaged in the rules of temperance the whole method of the training and all the daily regimen which contributes towards this great end has been dealt with in certain written manuals of instruction for the benefit of those who love details yet there is a plainer guide to be found than verbal instruction and that is practice and there is nothing vexatious in the maxim that when we are undertaking a long journey or voyage we should get an instructor but says the apostle the word is near you the grace begins at home there is the manufactory of all the virtues there this life has become exquisitely refined by a continual progress towards consummate perfection there whether men are silent or whether they speak there is a large opportunity for being instructed in this heavenly citizenship through the actual practice of it any theory divorced from living examples however admirably it may be dressed out is like the unbreathing statue with its show of a blooming complexion imposed in tints and colors but the man who racks as well as teaches as the gospel tells us he is the man who is truly living and has the bloom of beauty and is efficient and stirring it is to him that we must go if we mean according to the saying of scripture to retain virginity one who wants to learn a foreign language is not a competent instructor of himself he gets himself taught by experts and can then talk with foreigners so for this high life which does not advance in nature's groove but is estranged from her by the novelty of its course a man cannot be instructed thoroughly unless he puts himself into the hands of one who has himself led it in perfection and indeed in all the other professions of life the candidate is more likely to achieve success if he gets from tutors a scientific knowledge of each part of the subject of his choice than if he undertook to study it by himself and this particular profession is not one where everything is so clear that judgment as to our best course in it is necessarily left to ourselves it is one where to hazard a step into the unknown at once brings us into danger the science of medicine once did not exist it has come into being by the experiments which men have made and has gradually been revealed through their various observations the healing and the harmful drug became known from the attestation of those who had tried them and this distinction was adopted into the theory of the art so that the close observation of former practitioners became a precept for those who succeeded and now any one who studies to attain this art is under no necessity to ascertain at his own peril the power of any drug whether it be a poison or a medicine he has only to learn from others the known facts and may then practice with success it is so also with that medicine of the soul philosophy from which we learn the remedy for every weakness that can touch the soul we need not hunt after a knowledge of these remedies by dint of guesswork and surmisings 
we have abundant means of learning them from him who by a long and rich experience has gained the possession which we seek in any matter youth is generally a giddy guide and it would not be easy to find anything of importance succeeding in which gray hairs have not been called in to share in the deliberations even in all other undertakings we must in proportion to their greater importance take the more precaution against failure for in them too the thoughtless designs of youth have brought less on property for instance or have compelled the surrender of a position in the world and even of renown but in this mighty and sublime ambition it is not property or secular glory lasting for its hour or any external fortune that is at stake of such things whether they settle themselves well or the reverse the wise take small account here rashness can affect the soul itself and we run the awful hazard not of losing any of our other things whose recovery even may perhaps be possible but of ruining our very selves and making the soul a bankrupt a man who has spent or lost his patrimony does not despair as long as he is in the land of the living of perchance coming again through contrivances into his former competence but the man who has ejected himself from this calling deprives himself as well of all hope of a return to better things therefore since most embrace virginity while still young and uninformed in understanding this before anything else it should be their employment to search out a fitting guide and master of this way lest in their present ignorance they should wander from the direct route and seek out new paths on their own in trackless wilds two are better than one says the preacher ecclesiastes four nine but a single one is easily vanquished by the foe who infests the path which leads to god and verily woe to him that is alone when he falls for he has not another to help him up some err now in their enthusiasm for the stricter life have shown a dexterous alacrity but as if in the very moment of their choice they had already touched perfection their pride has had a shocking fall and they have been tipped up from madly deluding themselves into thinking that that to which their own mind inclined them was the true beauty in this number are those whom wisdom calls the slothful ones proverbs fifteen nineteen who bestrew their way with thorns who think it a moral loss to be anxious about keeping the commandments who erase from their own minds the apostolic teaching and instead of eating the bread of their own honest earning fix on that of others and make their idleness itself into an art of living from this number too come the dreamers who put more faith in the illusions of their dreams than in the gospel teaching and style their own fantasies revelations hence too those who creep into the houses and again others who suppose virtue to consist in savage bearishness and have never known the fruits of long suffering and humility of spirit who could enumerate all the pitfalls into which any one might slip from refusing to have recourse to men of godly celebrity why we have known ascetics of this class who have persisted in their fasting even unto death as if with such sacrifices god were well pleased hebrews thirteen sixteen and again others who rush off into the extreme diametrically opposite practicing celebrity in name only and leading a life in no way different from the secular 
for they not only indulge in the pleasures of the table, but are openly known to have a woman in their houses, and they call such a friendship a brotherly affection, as if, forsooth, they could veil their own thought, which is inclined to evil under a sacred term. It is owing to them that this pure and holy profession of virginity is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Chapter 24 It would therefore be to their profit for the young to refrain from laying down for themselves their future course in this profession. And indeed, examples of holy lives for them to follow are not wanting in the living generation. Now, if ever before, saintliness abounds and penetrates our world. By gradual advances, it has reached the highest mark of perfectness. And one who follows such footsteps in his daily rounds may catch this halo. One who tracks the scent of this preceding perfume may be drenched in the sweet odors of Christ himself. As, when one torch has been fired, flame is transmitted to all the neighboring candlesticks, without either the first light being lessened or blazing with unequal brilliance on the other points where it has been caught, so the saintliness of a life is transmitted from him who has achieved it to those who come within his circle. For there is truth in the prophet's saying, that one who lives with a man who is holy and clean and elect will become such himself. If you would wish to know the sure signs which will secure you the real model, it is not hard to take a sketch from life. If you see a man so standing between death and life, as to select from each helps for the contemplative course, never letting death stupor paralyze his zeal to keep all the commandments, nor yet placing both feet in the world of the living, since he has weaned himself from secular ambitions, a man who remains more insensate than the dead themselves to everything that is found on examination to be living for the flesh, but instinct with life and energy and strength in the advancement of virtue, which are the sure marks of the spiritual life, then look to that man for the rule of your life. Let him be the leading light of your course of devotion, as the constellations that never set are to the pilot. Imitate his youth and his gray hairs, or, rather, imitate the old man and the stripling who are joined in him. For even now, in his declining years, time has not blunted the keen activity of his soul, nor was his youth active in the sphere of youth's well-known employments. In both seasons of life, he has shown a wonderful combination of opposites, or rather an exchange of the peculiar qualities of each, for in age he shows, in the direction of the good, a young man's energy, while in the hours of youth, in the direction of evil, his passions were powerless. If you wish to know what were the passions of that glorious youth of his, you will have for your imitation the intensity and glow of his godlike love of wisdom, which grew with him from his childhood, and has continued with him into his old age. But if you cannot gaze upon him, as the weak-sighted cannot gaze upon the sun, at all events watch that band of holy men who are raged beneath him, and who, by the illumination of their lives, are a model for this age. God has placed them as a beacon for us who live around. Many among them have been young men there in their prime, and have grown gray in the unbroken practice of continence and temperance. They were old in reasonableness before their time, and in character outstripped their years. The only love they tasted was that of wisdom, 
not that their natural instincts were different from the rest, for in all alike the flesh lusts against the spirit. Galatians 5.17 But they listened to some proposed to him, who said that temperance is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her. And they sailed across the sailing billows of existence upon this tree of life, as upon a skiff, and anchored in the haven of the will of God. Enviable now, after so fair a voyage, they rest their souls in that sunny cloudless calm. They now ride safe themselves at the anchor of a good hope, far out of reach of the tumult of the billows. And for others who will follow, they radiate the splendor of their lives as beacon fires on some high watchtower. We have indeed a mark to guide us safely over the ocean of temptations. And why make the too curious inquiry, whether some with such thoughts as these have not fallen nevertheless? And why therefore despair, as if the achievement was beyond your reach? Look on him who has succeeded, and boldly launch upon the voyage with confidence that it will be prosperous, and sail on under the breeze of the Holy Spirit with Christ your pilot, and with the orage of good cheer. For those who go down to the sea in ships and occupy their business in great waters, do not let the shipwreck that has befallen someone else prevent their being of good cheer. They rather shield their hearts in this very confidence, and so sweep on to accomplish their successful feat. Surely it is the most absurd thing in the world to reprobate him who has slipped in a course which requires the greatest nicety, while one considers those who all their lives have been growing old in failures and in errors to have chosen the better part. If one single approach to sin is such an awful thing that you deem it safer not to take in hand at all this loftier aim, how much more awful a thing it is to make sin the practice of a whole life, and to remain thereby absolutely ignorant of the purer course. How can you, in your full life, obey the crucified? How can you, hail of sin, obey him who died to sin? How can you, who are not crucified to the world, and will not accept the mortification of the flesh, obey him who bids you to follow after him, and who bore the cross in his own body as a trophy from the foe? How can you obey Paul when he exhorts you to present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, when you are conformed to this world, and not transformed by the renewing of your mind, when you are not walking in this newness of life, but are still pursuing the routine of the old man? How can you be a priest unto God, anointed though you are for this very office, to offer a gift to God, a gift in no way another's, no counterfeited gift from sources outside yourself, but a gift that is really your own, namely, the inner man. Ephesians 3.16 Who must be perfect and blameless, as it is required of a lamb to be without spot or blemish? How can you offer this to God, when you do not listen to the law forbidding the unclean to offer sacrifices? If you long for God to manifest himself to you, why do you not hear Moses when he commands the people to be pure from the stains of marriage? that they may take in the vision of God. Exodus 19.15 If this all seems little in your eyes, to be crucified with Christ, to present yourself a sacrifice to God, to become a priest unto the Most High God, to make yourself worthy of the vision of the Almighty, 
what higher blessings than these can we imagine for you if indeed you make light of the consequences of these as well and the consequence of being crucified with christ is that we shall live with him and be glorified with him and reign with him and the consequence of presenting ourselves to god is that we shall be changed from the rank of human nature and human dignity to that of angels for so speaks daniel that thousand thousand stood before him daniel seven ten he too who has taken his share in the true priesthood and placed himself beside the great high priest remains altogether himself a priest forever prevented for eternity from remaining any more in death to say again that one makes oneself worthy to see god produces no less a result than this that one is made worthy to see god indeed the crown of every hope and of every desire of every blessing and of every promise of god and of all those unspeakable delights which we believe to exist beyond our perception and our knowledge the crowning result of them all i say is this moses longed earnestly to see it and many prophets and kings have desired to see the same but the only class deemed worthy of it are the pure in heart those who are and are named blessed for this very reason that they shall see god wherefore we would that you too should become crucified with christ a holy priest standing before god a pure offering in all chastity preparing yourself by your own holiness for god's coming that you also may have a pure heart in which to see god according to the promise of god and of our saviour jesus christ to whom be glory for ever and ever amen end of chapter twenty four End of On Virginity by St. Gregory of Nyssa, translated by William Moore and Henry Austin Wilson.